Let's take our Bibles and go to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. We're going to have a look there at a passage of Scripture. When I asked Mark uh, what, what topic he'd like me to talk on, it was so open-ended, my mind went many, many different directions. And one of them was to think about Calvin's perspective on wealth and vocation. And I was grateful to find in your resource packet a book on that by David Hall. If I could encourage you to read that, you will find it an invaluable book uh, to read. There's much that Calvin contributes uh, to our understanding, and that book is an excellent summary of his perspectives. I was intrigued uh, a couple years ago when I was in London, just driving home, sadly in the car and unable to do anything other than to listen with, uh, in a transfixed way, was the BBC did an article about China and how the government of China was going to Geneva in order to find out about Calvinism. And I thought, what is the Chinese government doing trying to understand more about Calvinism? And what they were trying to understand is why there were particular people and business owners in their country that were living in an exemplary way and their businesses were thriving. And as they looked into that and drilled down to that, they found a common denominator that these business owners and these uh, managers and, and workers were all Christian, and they were particularly Calvinistic Christians. And so they wanted to know more about Calvinism so they could use that under, the understanding of what lay behind that to try to encourage other business owners and other managers and other workers to be exemplary as well. So I thought it was very intriguing. You'll find out more about why that was the case by reading that book. It's an excellent book. But as I thought about this, I'm not really an educator. I've never been a businessman. Um, I'm not uh, a scholar. I'm a pastor. So what can I do? How can I contribute? Well, I can contribute the way a man back in the 19th century contributed. His name was uh, Boardman. He was a pastor at the time of the 10th Presbyterian Church. He was the first of five pastors they called the, the B pastors. There were five pastorates in a row. All of their names ended in B, and their pastorates uh, extended a period of about 200 years. You know the last two, probably Donald Gray Barnhouse and uh, James Montgomery Boyce. Well, Boardman was the first of those five, and he wrote a book. Uh, actually, he didn't write it. It was a collection of ten addresses plus a final funeral sermon, and it was collected into a book called The Bible in the Counting House. The Bible in the Counting House. And this is what he had to say at the very outset of the book. He said, Merchants have had too little help from the pulpit. They've been left very much to frame their own ethics and to grapple as they might with the temptations and trials of business. There's no lack of sermons and books on the vices of great cities, able treatises on the formation of character enter largely into the conservative literature of the age but an adequate handbook on the moralities of commerce is yet to be supplied. That's a sad testimony, isn't it? And so he thought by giving ten sermons, we don't know whether they were Sunday evening sermons or business lunchtime sermons or whatever they were, uh, they were finally collected into a book. And you can find it uh, in Google uh, Books, and you can also find it on Amazon. They've finally reprinted it, so it's available uh, for you to purchase. One of the things that I really appreciated Mark saying was in discussions with his friend that 
thinking about what it meant to be a Christian and a businessman, that we needed to get beyond the idea of simply doing our things with excellence, because an unbeliever can do things in an excellent manner. Is there anything distinctly Christian about what we can do? And Boardman picked up that thought in his book. He said this, The Bible is only beginning to make its way into the counting house. Many who imagine themselves to be quite ready for it, who even suppose they have long ago received it, have a very crude conception of what this involves. We haven't thought deeply enough, is what he's saying, about God's word, how God's word integrates into our understanding when we go into the workplace. They think simply conducting their establishments with integrity, avoiding every approach to deception and falsehood, requiring all their subordinates to be truthful and courteous, fulfilling their engagements with scrupulous fidelity, and shunning all collateral speculations. He said, this is all very well as it goes, but if they pause here, the Bible is not yet enthroned in their counting rooms. Nothing, he says, will satisfy it but an earnest, aggressive Christianity, which shall be ever intent upon doing good to the utmost measure of its capacity. It is as much the law of the true riches to diffuse themselves as it is of cupidity to hoard. And the more a merchant possesses this incorruptible wealth, the more he will be inclined to share it with others. The opportunities for this in an extensive business are equally varied and important. Now, where did he get that idea? Well, let's go to Luke chapter 12 and find out where he got that idea from. Because this is only a kernel thought that's actually explained in many, many other places in Scripture. But here's one in which Jesus gives us both the warnings and the encouragements about and to be careful about our use of what God has given us for his glory. In Luke chapter 12, after spending some time discipling, teaching his disciples about worry and identity and courageous uh, identification with Jesus Christ, he gets into another one of those issues that is of great danger to the heart, and that is about the warning about harboring wealth within our hearts rather than holding it in our hands and using it. The distractions to the spiritual life are deep when it comes to wealth. The scriptures are filled with passages that talk about this, and here's one of them. The situation arises in which Jesus uses to teach. In Luke 12, beginning in verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Apparently this man's brother had taken the legal loophole to take as the older brother uh, the inheritance to himself rather than the loving path and to divide it among the family. And the younger brother was upset about it, as younger brothers usually are to their older brothers. Jesus replied, man who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you. Jesus said, I'm not going to adjudicate this matter. That's not my role. But he did have something to say. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Though Jesus didn't enter into the family feud, he certainly did have something relevant to say to both brothers and to us. And here he gives a warning about the hazards about this inheritance that they both so desperately wanted to grab a hold of. 
He tells them that our life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. If Jesus were alive today, he would speak against that attitude and that maxim of Malcolm Forbes' life, he who dies with the most toys wins. The scriptures are filled with statements about the dangers of greed and avarice. They're listed in all the classic lists of moral vices. Romans chapter 1, Ephesians 4 and 5, Colossians 3, 1 Timothy 6. There's one in Job 31 that I found particularly engaging in my thought. Job there replied to his charges and he said, If I put my trust in gold and said to pure gold, you are my security. If I've rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands have gained, then these also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. Scripture, and here Jesus is crying out to these two men and to us, beware of what you're asking for. Be on your guard. This inheritance might kill you. Our hearts are vulnerable to the feeling and to the notion that our lives really are equal to our possessions. And our possessions are an indication of what real life is about. I mentioned Malcolm Forbes in that statement. That statement was brought up in, a, in People magazine speaking about his funeral. And the article titled, A Palette of Publicity Bows Out in Grand Style, and talks about many thousands of people that gathered not very far from here in order to praise Malcolm Forbes after his passing. And there, during his uh, funeral, to have on display many of his possessions. The subtitle of that article was, Malcolm Forbes owned castles and yachts, ran with bikers and movie stars, and almost proved his maxim, he dies with the most toys, wins. But one of the things that the article said, that in addition to all the things that he possessed and his accumulated wealth, that he owned eight houses. One of those was an island in Fiji, and that's where Malcolm Forbes is buried, under a marker with this epithet. While alive, he lived. While alive, he lived. Jesus stands directly against that perspective. The Word of God tells us that the rich do not live by reason of their possessions, but by reason of their use of those possessions. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19 Paul instructed Timothy to give this to those in the church that did have material wealth. As for the rich in this pleasant present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's how we really live while we're alive, is by trusting God and using our resources in a way that glorifies him. So here is Jesus with an urgent and passionate warning, but also a careful instruction to us about how we might move from selfishness to a life that glorifies the Lord in our generosity. Let's take a look at the passage again. 
And what we'll notice in here are three things. We'll see God's estimate of this rich man's life. We'll see God's exercise of his sovereignty over his life. And God and Jesus using this man's life as an example for the opposite good. We must look at the warning before we can look at the positive side of this first, however. He told them a parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. This man mistakenly saw himself as the master of his life and his possessions rather than a manager of resources of life and wealth loaned to him by God and to whom he would give an account. But here he is with a good problem. I I often say at the church that growing pains are the best pains to have, and we're grateful to have growing pains. We are grateful that the Lord has so chosen to do that. Here's a man with growing pains. He's got a good problem, doesn't he? He's got a lot of wealth already. He has adequate resources to care for that wealth. And now he has, all of a sudden, a very sudden and significant increase. It's unexpected. He hasn't made any preparation for it. He now needs to deal with this. What is he going to do? And so he asks himself a question. He gives himself an answer. And he settles his heart down with some advice. What am I going to do? I know what I'll do. I'll tear these barns down. I'll build bigger ones. I'll store my grain. I'll store my goods. And I'll settle my life into this advice. I will tell myself to relax, to eat, drink, and to be merry. Now, if we were to stop right there, I think a lot of people would look at that and say there are some kernels of some significant wisdom there to be able to address a good problem in such a way shows that this man has, at least from the world's perspective, quite, a, quite an understanding of how, con- how to conduct himself and how to enjoy himself as well. But the Lord's estimate of this man is far different. He calls him a fool. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. Now, why is he called a fool? In order to look at that, we see more deeply in this passage of Scripture that there is need for some clarification, because there is the mistaken idea that perhaps just being rich is why he's called a fool. But it's not a bad thing that his land's produced productively. It's not a bad thing when business prospers. It's not a bad thing to receive promotions and pay increases. It's not a bad thing when our investments gain value. That's not the reason why he's a fool. This world needs more productive farmers. This world needs more profitable businesses. But why is this man called a fool? He was already rich. That is a significant point here. Jesus calls him already a rich man who has a sudden and significant and surprising increase of income. What makes him the fool 
is what he decides to do with this sudden, surprising, and significant increase. Because it reveals his heart. He tears down his barns, he builds bigger ones, he stores his grain and his goods, and his solution to the problem of his increased wealth reveals what's really inside. There's no question about the needy cases and how he might be able to use this sudden income, which he doesn't really need, for helpful and beneficial purposes. In the context of the people of Israel, this would be particularly significant because he's not asking himself, how can I bless those with whom I'm in a covenant relationship with before God? He doesn't look at the second table of the law and say, how can I love my neighbor as myself? He reveals that he's actually a very selfish and worldly man who is going to use this excess wealth to adequately supply a life of leisure. No regard whatsoever about those outside of his own confines. It's never entered into his mind. He is not righteous before the law. Nor does he show regard toward the first table of the law, to love the Lord his God, with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his strength. Here he says to himself, I will be the master of my future. I will tell myself to take it easy, to live in pleasure, to eat and to drink and to be merry, showing that his first love was for himself, for his own comfort, his own enjoyment. This man is not righteous before the great commands of the law in any way. And this eternal estimate is why God calls him a fool. Because a man's life is not determined by the amount of our possessions, but by the use of them. A contrast to this is found in Job chapter 29, where Job speaks, and he talks about how he lived his life. And he said, Whoever heard me spoke well of me, and those who saw me commended me, because I rescued the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to assist him. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. My eyes, I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. This fool couldn't say any of that. He couldn't even come close to it. Because all he could think about was himself, his added gain, and his easy future. The Lord does take an estimate of us, and his estimate of us is produced by the fruit of our hearts, the actions that we carry out. And this man revealed his heart, a foolish heart, because he didn't recognize that his material blessings came from God, nor did he recognize his obligation before God 
to use his possessions in a way that honored his maker. Jesus goes on to talk about God's exercise of his sovereignty over this man's life. This man thought that everything was under his control, but God said in verse 20, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Notice how fond this man is of using personal pronouns, I and my, indicating that he only lived for himself, that he was an embodiment, if you will, of a covetousness. This is my fruit, my barns, my good, my soul, my ease, my eating, my drinking, my pleasure. But God says to him, you're mine, and I'm going to call you to myself tonight. He had no future like he thought he had. He was going to be called to give an account because he was about to join the dead and the departed. His soul was going to be weighed in the balances, and his possessions and his social resume would show that he had no weight whatsoever in the eternal equation. Spurgeon used this as a call to the unconverted, particularly those who seem to think, as we often do, that we have life in front of us without any kind of near end or demise. He said, you fancy that you're happy. You're woefully deceiving yourself if you do. Your pleasures are short in duration. You're clothed in borrowed garments. You are seated at a banquet table of your pleasures, but the sword of divine judgment is suspended over your head by a slender thread. And in any moment you may be cut down by the hand of death and hurried before the judgment seat of Christ. And he called to those in his congregation and to those that had come to listen to him. He said, do not be any longer blinded, but turn your eyes upward and see your danger. Know that you're a sinner for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As a sinner, you are condemned and the curse of God hangs over you. And in a moment, you might be turned to hell. Turn off your eyes from sin and self and look to Jesus who is both now able and willing to save you if you're willing to believe on him. This man, as far as we know, was called before the tribunal of God's judgment, and he failed. His life and his eternity were not something to honor, but to cry over and to weep over. Jesus used this as a warning statement. But there's a, there's a word that he uses at the very end of this parable, which I think we can turn to the positive side. In verse 21, and this is the point that I want us to look at most closely. Jesus said, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. You see the juxtaposition between those two phrases? stores up for himself, and then on the other side is a richness toward God. We need to unpack that phrase a little bit. What does it mean to be rich toward God? And I want to turn this negative example into a positive encouragement for us. 
that Jesus is actually showing that although our material possessions are indeed temporary, they can be used to acquire eternal riches. And Jesus mentions this a little more deeply in chapter 12 than in other places in Luke, in Luke 16. And I think it's precisely what Paul was giving his exposition on in 1 Timothy chapter 6. This man had abundant opportunity to use his material possessions unselfishly and to demonstrate that he was living a life oriented toward God and could, therefore, because his heart was oriented to God, be assured of eternal reward. This is one of the expositions that you'll read, perhaps, uh, in Hall's book about Calvin. Weber, in the early part of the 1900s, misunderstood this perspective about Calvinism and equated uh, Calvin with pushing crass capitalism and the idea that uh, we had to make our calling assured, and we make our calling assured by our productivity and our frugality and, and turning things back into a, a prosperous business. And Weber misunderstood this very point about what Calvin would have preached, about our generosity being evidence of our heart oriented to God in a saving way. But here he tells us that we can be rich and have treasure toward God by not laying up a treasure for ourselves, but rather distributing our goods in a way that honors the Lord. So, Let's recast this discussion in a moment by asking ourselves, what does it mean to be rich toward God? What if the farmer had said to himself this instead? Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. How will I express them before God in order to demonstrate riches with him? I already have enough. I don't need a bigger and better safety net. I don't need better food. I don't need finer drink. I don't need bigger parties. I do indeed want to be made merry, but not in self-indulgent parties with rich retirees. I want to make merry with those who have been helped by my generosity. I want the fullest blessing of giving because you've taught me, Lord, it's more blessed to give than to receive. What if he had said that instead? What does it mean to be rich toward God? Well, let's take this parable and turn it inside out. Being rich toward God means the opposite of treating yourself as though you were made for things and not for God. We are not the servant of stuff. We are the servant of the Lord who's made us. Being rich toward God is the opposite of acting as though life consists of the abundance of possessions and not the abundance of knowing God. This is life and life eternal, Jesus said, knowing God. Being rich toward God means counting God as greater riches than anything on earth. Being rich toward God means we use our earthly riches to show how much we value him.
I'm going to close with just a few short statements and then an example of how someone demonstrated this. Material possessions belong to God, and he gives them to us as gifts. And sometimes those gifts are in the form of unearned surpluses of material things, like this rich man received. The rich man was wrong in assuming that he had exclusive ownership of these things, rather than to recognize the Lord had exclusive ownership of them, and he was simply entrusted with this. And how was he going to use it in a way that honored him? Material possessions belong to God, and he gives, gives them to us as gifts. Also, human life is on loan from God. It, too, is a gift and not a right. The rich man here assumed he owned his soul, he owned his future, he could lay out his path. But he discovered, oh, too late, the mistake when God suddenly brought the loan back in. The rich man had failed to account for mortality, and he failed to secure an eternity. This teaches us that anyone who believes that security and the good life are to be found in acquisitions and storing of more and more is mistaken. The voice of God here de-absolutizes material possessions by reminding us that the rich man does not know and cannot control who will acquire power of his wealth. I found it interesting that even Malcolm Forbes pondered that question and wrote a book with a friend of his about the lives of children of very rich, wealthy, and powerful people. What happened to them? Malcolm Forbes wondered, perhaps, what was going to happen to his children. This man didn't even take that into account. He thought nothing of that, but only of what he could do with his money. The abundant life is found in treasuring things up for God rather than self. And this is why Jesus said at the very end of this discourse, when he moves from this into worry, perhaps addressing the rich and the poor in his audience on that day, he said in verse 32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Boardman, and I want to go back to that point that he made, said that the Bible in the counting house means more than just doing things with excellence more than just having business ethics and integrity. It means an aggressive Christianity, let me quote him again, that is ever intent upon doing good to the utmost measure of its capacity. There's more than just a display of character, but the use of our means for the purposes of the gospel. That, he said, is the finer point behind what it means to be a Christian businessman. And he said, the more a merchant possesses this incorruptible wealth, the more inclined he will be to share it with others. And the opportunities for this in an extensive business are equally varied and important. 
be hard to go into the details or even in the history of people who have taken that thought and have shown themselves enriching the world with the gospel by taking their possessions and using them in a way that glorifies the Lord. Wesley said, earn all you can, save all you can, and give away all you can. He had the right thought. But I want to end with a little lesson, one that I happened upon, quite in a backwards kind of way. For several years, just recently, I recently come to Long Island two and a half years ago. I was a pastor in London for seven years. We lived probably a half a block away from Wandsworth Prison. It's a little strange looking out your bedroom window and seeing the wall of a prison. Um, so I would often pass by this prison um, to do, to go to the train station, to walk to the to the butcher, to all, do all sorts of things. And to show you just how, um, well, just how thoughtless I can be, for several years I walked by this prison and never gave a thought to this one building that was adjacent to the prison until uh, for, for one, one day, for some reason, I happened to look at it a little more closely, and there was a little sign in the window that said Spurgeon's. What is Spurgeon's doing on the sign of this building next to a prison? And it made me do a little bit of research, and I found out that this ministry was a welcome center for the families and the children of prisoners that were inside the prison. I had no idea it existed. And then I began to look a little more closely at Spurgeon's, and where did it come from? Well, in the 70s, uh, an orphanage called the Stockwell Orphanage, which had originally opened up for boys and then later included girls, was started by Charles Spurgeon. And in the 70s, it had finally closed down, and they had turned all those resources over into dealing with families of prisoners and ministering to families of prisoners. Counseling centers, welcome centers, crisis centers, just a hospitality room uh, as they spent a busy day on visitation days uh, going into the prison. I was aware of the Stockwell orphanages, but I wasn't aware until this moment to understand where the Stockwell orphanages had their origin. Spurgeon was writing an article for The Sword and the Trowel and just happened in sort of a passing comment to talk about all the orphans in the city of London and couldn't we do something about it? We're a large church, obviously we ought to be able to do something here. And he went on with the rest of his article. It was only just a little comment, uh, but one lady discovered that comment, and it burned deeply into her heart. And so she wrote a note to Spurgeon and said that if he were willing to take this up and to give oversight to this, she would be willing to donate 20,000 pounds to the starting up of an orphanage in London. Spurgeon received the letter and was surprised and saw the will of God in it, but wanted to, wanted to find out what was going on. So he took someone from the church with him and went to this lady's home and sat down with her. She was the widow of a retired Church of England minister, 
She had recently moved away from the established church to join Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle. She'd become a nonconformist, a Baptist. And so, and so there she was, a recent church member, reading her pastor's notes in The Sword and Trowel. And as they sat down together, Spurgeon, in his coy way, said to her, I want to thank you for your letter and for your offer of 200 pounds. And she said, 200 pounds? Uh, Did I I write 200 pounds? I meant to write 20,000 pounds. Remember, 200 pounds was the wage of of an average worker's yearly salary at the time. So she was offering 10 10 yearly salaries worth of material goods uh, to this. He said, no, no, you you wrote 20,000. I just wanted to make sure it wasn't a mistake. And he said, this is a lot of money. He said, are there any other family members that could use this money? He said, and she said, no, there's no one else that could receive this at all. This legacy has nowhere else to go but where, where I would like to direct it. And I want it to go to us doing this in London. He said, what about George Mueller? He already has care for orphanages in Bristol. Couldn't we already supply them? They have something going already. And she said, no, that that won't do. And so Spurgeon sealed that meeting with a prayer. And a few days later, he received a check for 20,000 pounds. The 20,000 pounds was a silver anniversary gift from her husband to her that she had kept and held on to and didn't spend until this moment. And so they built the Stockwell Orphanage. And the first building they built, uh, they called it the Silver Wedding House because of the gift that she had received on her silver wedding anniversary. And it says here in an article about her, the money she gave for the new orphanage, the gift to her from her husband on her silver wedding anniversary, after wise. Mr. Mrs. Hilliard lived for some years to revel in what she had initiated, and her last words as she died on January 13, 1880, were, My boys, my boys. I'm sure she was able to see a lot of her boys in heaven and there to enjoy what 20,000 pounds could never have bought on earth. She demonstrated what it means to be rich toward God. I can't uh, itemize for you what that might look like if you have material possessions, uh, but all I can say is think of the way or ways that you might be able to use those resources that are on loan to you in the life that is also on loan to you, that you might in eternity have a wealth of a treasure before God. God bless you.